0: Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon we hope you enjoy this message by pastor kyle hubbard for more about this podcast and other resources visit our website at www.riverinthehills.com okay. so the title of today's message is the day of the lord everyone say the day of the lord we're going to look at peter's words his perspective through the holy spirit on the return of Jesus." And this is part one, we're going through the first nine verses. So let's read those from Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three, it'll be up on the screen, verses one through nine. "Beloved, I now write to you this second letter, or epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers or mockers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, those scoffers willfully forget that by the word of god the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water in the water by which the world that then existed perished or was destroyed being flooded with water but the heavens and the earth which are now preser- but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men but beloved do not forget this one Thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the Lord is not slack concerning his promise the promise of the second coming of Jesus as some count slackness but he is long-suffering or patient towards humanity not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and salvation Wow. Let's go back up to verses 1 and 2. By the way, we're just going to walk through the scripture line by line, verse by verse this morning. Verse 1. Beloved, this is every believer, we're the beloved. I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. I would say reminder. So in the opening verse here, Peter makes it clear that the goal of both of his letters was to remind the believers of truths they were already familiar with. Peter knew and I know this morning as a pastor that the battle is primarily right here between the ears in our mind and that the act of simply reminding them would help them to win this most important battle. Peter knew that this godly remembrance of truth, simple truths, had the power to stir up an increase of faith, hope, and love in the thought life of these believers and us this morning. And free point here, this one's for free. The opposite, it's all for free by the way, the opposite of godly remembrance of truth is demonic remembrance Demonic remembrance of lies and past sins that have been covered in the blood. If God doesn't remember them, we shouldn't remember them. Demonic remembrance has the power to stir up fear, doubt, and depression. Don't entertain those demonic remembrances of lies and past sins that have been dealt with and cast into the sea of forgetfulness. God doesn't remember him. We shouldn't either. And that settles it. So let's make sure, according to verse 1, that we are stirring up our minds with the truth of God's word. Now verse 2, you see it up there. You can go to the, it's probably slide 4 or 5 that has the pictures and stuff. So verse 2, there you go. Verse 2 encourages, it's actually the next one, every believer to be mindful of the Old Testament prophets and the commandments of the apostles. And what is that code for? That's code for the entire New Testament record. Now at a quick glance of this verse, we don't catch the gravity of this charge. The word mindful captures that gravity. To be mindful of something, guess what? It means to literally have your mind full of whatever that thing is. Not full of sports stats, but full of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I had a youth, (laughs) he's now at Texas A&M where he's graduated now, amazing young man of God, but in high school he could recount any sports player, any sports stats, the most detailed memory and description of sports knowledge. And it really encouraged me because I knew once God got a hold of his heart and his mind that God would redeem that mind and he could be able to memorize truths of the scripture and the way of Jesus. And he's actually leading, last time I checked in, he's leading a fifth and sixth grade Bible study now at Texas (laughs) A&M. To have your mind full of something. So Peter here in verse 2 is saying that it will be necessary for us to fill our minds with all of the Old Testament prophecies, major and minor, and the entirety of the New Testament record, so that we don't get caught in the cultural narrative of deception, the spirit of Babylon, that is brought out in the next few verses. Think about it, guys. Our brains have limited capacity and storage space, just like a computer. These eight-pound brains have limited RAM space. (laughs) So let's do ourselves a favor by allowing these precious supercomputers to be fed much input of the data of the Bible so that we actually give the Holy Spirit something to work with when it comes to his job of reminding us of things that God has said already. The Holy Spirit can't remind us of something that we haven't first put in there through diligent Bible study and meditation. He can't do his job if we don't give him data to remind us of. So, uh oh, (laughs) that we might have our minds full of the words of the holy prophets and of the commandments of the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Again, in part, so that we don't fall victim to the cunning craftiness of the cultural narrative of deception that is brought out in the next few verses. What are those verses? Three and four up on the screen. Knowing this first, church, that scoffers, mockers, will come in the last days walking according to their own desires or own lusts what's going to be their main statement when they're mocking us where is the second coming where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers of the faith fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation business as usual guys why are you believing in this man coming from the sky Yeah. In verses three and four here, Peter warns us that scoffing and mocking will be the most common response to the idea that Jesus is literally, physically coming back from heaven. And just to warn us, if we rightly continue to believe and therefore preach this truth, this truth that a resurrected God man a Jewish man will descend from the clouds and touch down in the Middle East and destroy the Antichrist and his empire, if we believe that and say it, we will be maligned. We will be mocked. More plainly, we will be made fun of. We ourselves will become the object of scorn and scoffing and derision. These mockers, they're gonna ask you directly. You, Mari, they're gonna ask you directly, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For since all your heroes of the faith have died, all things have continued just as they were from the very beginning. And we see the scoffers' main argument here in verse four. The reason why they are mocking this truth is because they truly believe that nothing really has changed about life in planet Earth for the last 6,000 years. And to back up their scoffing, they will point to the fact that all of the prophetic signs leading up to Jesus' return that he brought out in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, these signs have always happened and always will happen. Those being wars, famines, diseases, earthquakes, persecution, deception, false prophets, false messiahs arising and so on. And guess what, to an extent, These scoffers are right. The signs that Jesus and the prophets pointed to have always existed since the beginning of creation. But in this argument, they are willfully ignoring the all-important qualifier. I would say qualifier. The all-important qualifier and descriptor that Jesus used to describe the way that these signs would manifest before his return. What was this qualifier? He said that these signs would be like... Birth pangs, birth pangs. Every mother in here, to some extent fathers, a way less extent, knows exactly what Jesus means by this qualifier. (laughs) We have to observe and try to empathize with the pain, but mothers, y'all are heroes. (laughs) Yes, if you're here, mama went through birth pains to birth you. What are birth pains? Birth pains tend to come on slowly, right mamas? As each contraction gradually increases in both frequency and intensity. And this process can last a couple hours or multiple days, (laughs) depending on the birth. These birth pains gradually increase until the most intense time of childbirth preparation, which is called transition, when the mother's body rapidly gets ready for the actual birth. Guess what? And so it will be. So it will be with the years and decades preceding the return of Jesus the frequency and intensity of these signs that I just mentioned will increase slowly and slowly and then suddenly transition it will explode in magnitude and scope such as the world has never seen and just to give you a little taste of the scope of escalation of transition that's coming to planet earth to prepare you according to the book of revelation Guess how many people will die from wars, famines, diseases, and wild beasts in a very short time? Four billion if it were to happen today. Half the planet is going to die in a very short time. Four billion if it were today. For some context, how many people died in World War II? That was the Civil War. 85 million people died in World War II. That's a lot. That's exceedingly tragic in World War II, 85 million. But compare that to four billion. That's almost 50 times as much as World War II of what's coming with the rapid increase of birth pains leading to the, the birth of the age to come and the second coming. Yeah, prepare us, Lord. And just to arm you with even more facts, these signs, scientifically, have already been increasing in frequency and intensity over the last century or so. So these mockers are willfully denying this strong, albeit gradual, evidence. It's so gradual, it's lulling them to sleep. And couple this with the overall rise of technology and information spreading rapidly, as Daniel talked about, and a globalist one world order system more attainable and probable than ever. All of this, what is it? It all shows that we, as Bible believing Christians, actually have more of the science, the prophetic science, on our side than these mockers and scoffers have. But just so we're clear, a lack of awareness of statistical trends and global patterns is not the core issue here with these scoffers and mockers that Peter warned us about. Their core problem and the big indictment against them from the Holy Spirit is brought out in the next three verses. We're going to look at them now. 2 Peter 3, verses five through seven. Peter says this, for this they willfully forget, I would say willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished or was destroyed, being flooded with water But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So it's clear from these verses that the biggest problem with these end-time scoffers is that they have willfully chosen to forget the word of God. The opposite of remembrance is forgetting. They have forgotten the Word of God. And more specifically, they have forgotten the raw power. I wouldn't say raw power. The raw power of God's voice to suddenly change a circumstance. All throughout scripture, there are literally hundreds of examples of God simply speaking Simply saying a word, a sentence, and then this sentence has released the power to suddenly and cataclysmically shift a scenario in favor of God's glory. Because these mockers have not filled their mind with the countless records of the power of God's voice, they have become foolish and forgetful. And it's led them to a place where they are now denying the physical return of Jesus. And they're going to such an extent that they're making fun of those who do believe he's coming back. And just a little fun here, because I know our church, I know the sheep. Including myself, I'm one of them. These mockers, these return of Jesus deniers, these are the true election deniers. These are the true election deniers because they have denied God's election of Jesus as King to come back to rule and reign on planet Earth. (laughs) So the next time someone calls you an election denier, stop the steal. Use this as an opportunity to bring up the most important election, which again is God's election, God's choice to send Jesus back to Jerusalem in the flesh. (laughs) So back to the text. So Peter here in verses 5 through 7 gives us five biblical examples of the raw power of God's word to suddenly change a landscape and he points us to the fact that these return of Jesus deniers have willfully chosen to forget these accounts first they have willfully chosen to forget that with one sentence God breathed trillions of stars trillions of galaxies with one sentence what was that sentence Let there be light. Who said it? Man of God. 11 years old, man of God, right? 12, sorry. One sentence. Let there be light. Trillions of stars into being. By the word of God, the heavens were of old. That's what that means. If you read it quick, you don't grasp it. Second, they have willfully chosen to forget the fact that God, on the third day of creation, spoke into being a separation or a boundary between the sea and the dry land. Why did he do this? So that human life could thrive. Third, these current scoffers have willfully chosen to forget that with one command, one word, God removed those boundaries. And within a few hours, business as usual, on planet Earth in Noah's day was completely shattered. As the great flood destroyed all life on land. Yes, as in the days of Noah, except those eight favored souls on Noah's boat. I'm looking at a lot of favored souls. They're gonna make it out of the end time judgment right now by faith and grace. Fourth, these present-day mockers have willfully chosen to forget that the current world is being held together by the cohesive glue of Jesus' ever-present and merciful words. Hebrews 1.3, if you want to look that up. Hebrews 1.3. And lastly, these mockers have willfully chosen to forget that this whole universe... Everything seen and unseen is simply one suddenly word of God away from being completely annihilated and destroyed with consuming fire. You know, when we say fire up here, we believe that the Holy Spirit's going to fall on people. We believe that. If God were to say fire, we would truly feel it. The entire universe would catch on fire if he meant it in that scope. That's the power of God's suddenly word. fire, holy fire. Not that yet, that's for God. <laughs> so once more, in summation, what is these mockers' great problem? Their great core problem is that they have forgotten the biblical record. They have a lack of faith. Why? Because they have a lack of hearing and remembering God's word, Romans ten seventeen. And again, more specifically, they don't believe in the raw power of God's voice. The power of God's voice to suddenly bring about a seismic transition of planet Earth into the age to come, where Jesus will reign in his resurrected body from Jerusalem. Overall, these mockers are being lulled into a deception by allowing a wrong perception of God's leadership of humanity to take root in their hearts. They're offended with God's leadership, his patient leadership. Deep down, these mockers are offended at God's long-term patience with humanity and have conflated this divine long-suffering with believing, They actually believe that God lacks the power and the ability to perform and make good on his most precious promises. Unless we fall into the same trap, Peter, in the last two verses we'll look at this morning, takes us higher. Can you take me higher <laughs> to a place where blind men see? Peter's trying to do that. That's a great kind of prophetic song, by the way. <laughs> he takes, Peter takes us higher. Go Rangers, by the way. I think that was their theme song. For the World Series run was Creed, 20 <laughs> year old Creed. Sorry, lest we fall into the same trap, Peter in the next two verses takes us higher to see God's heavenly perspective on time itself and gives us an amazing reason why there has been a long time delay for the second coming of Christ. Call, grab some water. So let's look at those now, verses 8 and 9. I'm just storing up eternal rewards for you, by the way. You give a cup of cold water to a disciple in my name, he'll remember it forever. (laughs) So you got two already. (laughs) Don't pray for my thirst, though, so you can get more. (laughs) (laughs) All right, verses 8 and 9, the last two we'll look at this morning. But beloved, again, we're the beloved, do not forget this one Thing. this is Peter's one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day to him. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Peter tells us here that it is imperative for every believer to view God's patient long-term redemptive plan with the correct perspective, the correct lens. And again, in these two brilliant verses, he gives us this higher perspective. He tells us why Jesus hasn't come back yet and why human history has seemed to be slowly inching like a snail along the tracks over the last 6,000 years. (laughs) He tells us why it feels that way. In verse 8, he shows us God's perspective of time as he sits high above time itself in a completely different realm called eternity. Eternity literally means outside of time or above time. And eternity is the realm that God, the great I am, inhabits, he inhabits eternity. We are in time. God himself is outside of time. Think about it. God has never not existed. Let that hurt your brain. That's actually really healthy. When you sit and think about eternity, it's so healthy for you. That pain is growing you, your eternal perspective. God has never not existed, and he always will exist. There will never be an end. Let your mind go that way. You're never gonna die. You're never gonna die. You might taste death, but your last breath here is your first breath there. God simply was and is, and will be, and that settles it. This is the eternal God that we worship, that we bow down to. <laughs> so how does this eternal God, who is outside of time, view one little day on our human calendar? For example, Sunday, January 14th, 2024, how does he view this day? With the Lord, one day, January 14th, is as a thousand years. What in the world does this mean? (laughs) ever thought about this? Well, taking it at face value, which we should with all of the scriptures, unless it tells us explicitly it's symbolic, taking it at face value, I think it means that God is so infinitely powerful and able that he can accomplish a thousand years' worth of work in one single day. He could do, saying it simply, he could do a lot with a little, a lot with a little time. <laughs> he could do so much in just one day through each of our seemingly little nondescript lives. because think about it, when you touch a human soul, you're touching an eternal soul. So if you help them see Jesus, you're helping something for eternity. That's way longer than a thousand years. (laughs) So according to this verse, no day and no life, Luis, is little or nondescript to God. Every day is descript according to the script for him. (laughs) Every day is a chance for him to accomplish something exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask, think, or imagine. This verse gives a whole new light and weight to the phrase carpe diem, am I right? (laughs) and looking forward, this verse will really make sense on the one single day on the future calendar that the Lord will physically come back. In that single day, that one day, there will be such a dramatic sweeping change that we will truly say from experience and from our hearts, with the Lord, one day, the day of the return of Jesus is as a thousand years this great future day will feel, it'll feel like a thousand years worth of redemption and deliverance was accomplished all at once. We will be like those who dream. Our mouths will be filled with laughter and our tongues will be filled with singing. <laughs> we will say, the Lord has done great things for Say that. The Lord has done great things for us. Say it again. The Lord has done great things for us. So what's on the other side of the coin of this truth? It's brought out in the next phrase. With the Lord, it's the opposite. A thousand years is as one day. Now what in the world does this flip side truth mean? <laughs> With the Lord, a thousand years is as one day? I believe this phrase, and I'm submitting all of this in humility, I believe this phrase speaks of God's sheer size and his utter holiness and his absolute supremacy above humanity. And ultimately, this phrase speaks of God's ability to view the end of the story from the beginning <laughs> and to view the beginning from the end. In one moment, he can do this. In one moment, he can view the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. We're not like that. (laughs) We're scared about what's happening at 2 p.m. today with the ice. (laughs) We're not like that. He's different than us. (laughs) And again, if we take this phrase literally, that to the Lord a thousand years is as one day, this means that God is so massive and so outside of time that a thousand years of human history feels like a normal Tuesday to him. The Magna Carta feels like it was this morning to him. What year was that, 1215? 1215. (laughs) We were singing about it earlier this week. They're learning dates and history through song. It's powerful. A thousand years of human history feels like a normal Tuesday to him. (laughs) Let's think about this for a second. All of the human strivings over the past thousand years, all the games of power and empire all the ebbs and flows of ethnic groups domineering one another, all the billions of babies born and the billions of bodies buried. All of this for the past thousand years has been as little in God's eyes as a lazy day on the beach. All of the nations are indeed like a drop in the bucket to him. And all the years of humanity could be measured by him with just one of his hand breaths. That's what it says in the Psalms. Measured right here. It's like nine inches for me. For God, it's a thousand years. This is how big our God is. And this is what verse 8 means to tell us. That's why he says, don't forget this one thing. <laughs> There's a lot in that one verse. All right, Donnie, you can come up. to our final verse, verse nine. And I believe, guys, verse nine here, I used to work at a chemistry lab. I had verses eight and nine right in front of me every day because they moved me so much. I believe verse nine here gives the best and most concise explanation of God's dealings with humanity over the millennia. He's so patient with us. He's so kind. He doesn't want one to perish, but all to come to repentance. His heart is for all. All of us and everyone you've ever seen. This verse explains why the promised return of Jesus has experienced such a long delay. A delay that has continued to this very moment. Guess what? Jesus isn't back yet. There's a reason for that. And this verse tells us why. Peter right here, Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, which is the promise of the second coming of Jesus, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering. He's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish. Everyone say any. But that all should come to repentance and salvation. This is God's will for every person to be in heaven forever with him. This is what he wants. And sometimes God doesn't get what he wants. Let that mess with your theology. Because if you you were to come back today, most likely seven billion plus people would instantly go to hell. So that's why he's waiting. Peter tells us plainly that the Lord is not lazy. He's not slack or forgetful concerning the promise of the second coming of Jesus. Peter tells us exactly why there has been a nearly 2,000-year delay on this promise. The delay is a divine delay. A delay based on God's abundant patience and long-suffering towards humanity. Because God has such a long fuse, a long fuse of anger and wrath, because it's so long, He is being scandalously Patient with the worst of sinners. Offensively patient with the worst of sinners and the worst of nations. Our God delights in mercy so much. I was cursing him in hell. And he was waiting for me to stop punching at him like a little kid punching at his father's chest. I experienced death in hell. And I thought my... I was gonna be there forever, so I might as well get right with the devil. And I didn't believe, I didn't want to, but I was just trying to get some sort of relief. So I started cursing God. I was like, what does the devil believe? He hates God, he hates Jesus. So I'm gonna try to trick him into believing that I believe what he believes, but I didn't, I was just trying my best. So I started cursing God and cursing Jesus. I got lower and lower in torment, and he was just waiting till I gave up. God's mercy is scandalous. It's offensive. He gives us better than we deserved. And then he put a yes in my heart. And I cried out yes. And instantly I was back to life on the hospital bed. But this time with peace shrouding me. Heavenly peace filling me from the inside out. And that's just me. That's just me. Our God delights in mercy so much. He himself is such a prisoner of hope. The ultimate prisoner of hope is God. He is believing the best and holding out hope to the very last moment and sometimes beyond the last moment, as in my case, after my heart had stopped. For every human being, he's holding out hope and believing the best. Let's stand to our feet. Now, why is he so patient? Why does he give each person seemingly countless opportunities to say yes to him? This last phrase of verse 9 tells us why. God is not willing. It's not his heart's desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, plainly, God's desire is that no person, no human being would perish and be eternally separated from him forever in hell. You know what hell was created for primarily? The devil and his angels, not for man. The thought that God would create a beautiful human soul made in his image and his likeness to be predestined to destruction and dishonor and hell, that is hogwash. Sorry, Calvinists, you're wrong on that point. And I'll die on that hill. That's a demonic doctrine, that point of Calvinism. Some of the other ones are right. It is. You you gave us courage to call out demonic doctrines with that third stump. So I felt the green light there. Get the stump out, he just said. Hell, y'all got to hear me. Hell is the last thing on God's list for people. It's the last resort. But sadly, it's the very thing that so many people devolve into and willfully choose as so many willfully deny his offer of pardon, of mercy and everlasting life through his son, Jesus. Again, if Jesus came back today, probably seven plus billion people would instantly go to hell. That's why he's not back yet. Because that's not cool with God and it shouldn't be cool with us. God wants that number to shrink Dramatically, that number of destruction will shrink. I believe it will shrink through our prayers and our efforts of obedience to share Jesus with as many people as He calls us to. Right, Waylon? You're a number shrinker, a destruction shrinker. That's that's what you are. So, based on this verse, in closing. I want us to see that each day we wake up and check the sky. Someone go check the sky. Is Jesus back in? No? Okay. See that as a sign that God's patience with humanity has not run out yet. Let's see each sunrise without a physical Jesus sitting on a throne in Jerusalem as a sign that God's mercy is still abundantly flowing from the cross for sinners. (laughs) The window is still open. The ark is still open. Offering them a fresh chance for repentance unto life. The same mercy that touched me and that has touched many of you in here, if not all, when we first said yes. Let's view each new year as an opportunity to win souls, and satisfy the desire of our bridegroom God that no one should perish, but that all around us should come to know him. Who knows? Think about your circle of influence. Who knows? What if God would grant everyone close to you repentance unto life? There's no scripture that says that can happen, that everyone that knows Daniel Alexander would know God. There's no scripture preventing that. We already know that God wants them and that He would go to any length to reveal Himself to them. See Exhibit A right here. Guess what, guys? We are fighting for a winning cause. We are on the winning team with a winning God, a God who is powerful enough to satisfy their deepest longings. We're giving them something really good. That's why it's good news. So let's step into 2024 with 2 Peter 3.9 on our workbench, like it was for me years ago, as a guidestone verse. Let's step into this year believing that every person we lay eyes on, every person you lay eyes on in that coffee shop, every person that still has breath in their lungs is a bullseye target for God's love and mercy. Through us, through us, Let's simultaneously pray and cry out for the return of Jesus. Jesus, come back. That's still a really good prayer. Should be number one on our list. But also, let's pray for the patience of God to result in a massive end-time harvest of a billion-plus souls. Shrink in that number. A billion-plus new converts that would satisfy the Father heart of God. It would satisfy the Father heart of God to see His heavenly living room full for all eternity. He wants His living room full. No empty seat of the table of the wedding supper of the Lamb. A billion plus souls that would tip the scales in heaven and allow God to send His Son back home to Jerusalem. So to officially, officially close, this is what pastors do, we close three times. (laughs) It's true. I don't know why we do it. Every time, almost. So to officially close, close, let's pray. Let's pray that God would give us this verse 9 heart for every person, for all, that none would perish, but that all would come to salvation and repentance. Let's pray that God would give us this verse nine heart for every person in our circle of influence, as well as those future people that we're gonna meet this year. So let's just break up into groups of two, three, four. This is how we're gonna close today. We're gonna pray with each other. Groups of two, three, four, five, people close to you. Pray, what are we praying for? The verse nine heart for all. That everyone your eyes lay on this year would be a target for God's love and mercy through you. We can't do this in our own strength. We have to receive the Father's heart, the bridegroom's heart, the Holy Spirit's heart to magnify the son. So just ask for his heart, ask for help, and he's gonna give it right now, let's do that. Pray together for the verse nine heart for all in your circle of influence to know him. Who knows, who knows if everyone around you could be saved. Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. To download the notes and slides for this message, visit our website, riverinthehills.com. If you would like to partner with us in moving God's heart and changing the world, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend.